this has come up a couple of times before, but it's worth bringing up again. I'm generally under the impression that the keep politics out of entertainment argument isn't really a declaration that deserves to be taken seriously. I think it's usually made by people with shitty politics who want to flow through polite society without ever being challenged with the ramifications of what their positions are. And generally, I'm in favor of we shouldn't be letting white supremacists feel comfortable. Uh, art is a mirror that reflects the world that produced it, intentionally or not, something that is going to come up again in this show and has come up a couple of times before. Now, even art that consciously avoids making a statement is making a statement, usually about a sense of complacency with the status quo. This is widespread. Everything that a person makes is emblematic of what went into it, but fewer things are less subtle about it than the zombie movie. Now, the modern zombie movie was calcified into a trope with 1968's Night of the Living Dead, and that particular film centers on Ben, a truck driver who fights against the zombies and gets killed by a lynch mob at the end. This character was not written to be black, but casting a black actor, Dwayne Jones, to play the role one can't help but give the film a, t a subtextual message about racism, particularly considering that it came out in 1968, a flashpoint for the civil rights movement. Romero claims that he didn't intend for 1978's Dawn of the Dead to have thematic motifs regarding consumerism, but that's really hard to believe while you're watching the film. A bunch of zombies shuffling around a mall that lends certain things to it. Now this leads us to Blood Quantum, a zombie movie that prioritizes zombie movie carnage, but it undeniably bears underpinnings about colonialism and settler treatment of First Nation people in Canada. My name is Ryan, Surreal Deep Dive, we're talking about Blood Quantum. Yeah, and me, Rachel, back again, and I, I liked Blood Quantum. I liked it more than I thought I would because I was under the impression that it was going to be, you know, campy as fuck. But it took itself seriously enough. And I was like, wow, this movie is gorgeous. And I am a really hard sell on zombies. I just, yeah, I'm you're, just not into them. Yeah, you're a big horror fan in general, but not the not the zombie variety. No, I mean, I really like this one. I like Zombie 2. I enjoyed The Living Dead that came out in, what, 2004? I enjoyed that one, but usually I'm like, eh, zombies are just... What is your take on Night and Dawn of the Living Dead? Uh, I've actually seen, I haven't seen either of them. Oh. That just goes to show you how much I care about zombies. <laughs> yeah, those are the biggies. I, I probably should watch, you know, the original 1968 one, but I always think of something else I want to watch instead, and then I watch that. Yeah, we'll get around to one or both <laughs> of them on the show at some point, I imagine. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, let's dive right into the plot of the film. All right, it takes place in 1981 on the Red Crow Indian Re uh, Reservation in Quebec. First shot involves fisherman Gizagu noticing that his salmon haul continues to thrash around even after they've been gutted. I thought that was such a creepy and good way to establish that there is something wrong, and yeah. I've never seen zombie fish before. You've Pointed that out as we were watching it. I was it. like, oh shit, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Elsewhere, Gizigu's son, Indigenous Sheriff Trailer, responds to a call about a dying dog belonging to his ex-wife, a nurse named Joss. He shoots the dog and then learns that his son Joseph has been arrested in a nearby town for vandalism. He pooped off a bridge. 
it was actually pretty funny. Just the way it's put, just the way it's put together, it's pretty funny. Yeah, he climbs to the top of a bridge and just poops on a car because he's a <laughs> drunk idiot teenager, and that's what he's up with. Yep. Yeah, and he's currently sitting in jail with his half-brother Lysol. He's kind of the bad seed of the family. Trailer had him when he was too young and kind of went off the rails a bit. And he's kind of a shitty dad. And and now Lysol's this young punk with no future, just keeps acting out. Trailer visits his father and is shown the salmon. Joss's dog then reanimates in the back of Trailer's cruiser, prompting another gunshot. Uh, Gizigo and Trailer then immolate both the dog and the fish. And the fish is still moving while it's being burned, as Gizuku points out. Yeah, we don't get a shot of the fish still moving around because this film probably didn't have enough money to have, like, an animate fish thrashing around while it's on fire. Well, it was just twitching a little. Yeah. Twitchy twitch fish. Trailer and Joss head into town to bail out Joseph. They, along with police officer Shamu, encounter an ill and belligerent man who bites Joseph on the arm. Joseph heads to the hospital, which is actually an abortion clinic, where, a small town in Canada. <laughs> where his pregnant girlfriend, uh, Charlie, is sitting there and awaiting a procedure. He has ambivalent feelings about it. He thinks her desire for an abortion reflects poorly upon him. Uh, we should probably point this out now that Charlie is white. Yeah, yeah, Char- Charlie like is white. That is a central plot point. Trailer then responds to a call from an indigenous man named Shooker. He is attacked and bitten by Shooker's white girlfriend, who was pregnant, but is seen chewing on the fetus. This is going to be this type of movie. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty. It was pretty creepy. At first, he's like, "Yeah, she's probably on on drugs," but it's like, no, but it's zombies and drugs. Yeah, they're both on, uh, they don't tell you what they're on, yeah, cocaine or methamphetamines, it seems like meth based on my limited understanding of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. After beating her to death with the butt of a shotgun, Trailer and Shooker head to the bridge. They encounter Joss, Joseph, and Charlie, who fled there in an ambulance from the hospital because zombie shit is going on there. It usually starts in a hospital. The film then cuts to six months later. The outbreak of flesh-eating zombies, referred to as Zeds in this film, has toppled world governments. The Red Crow Reservation has been turned into a fortified compound. Its residents have learned that indigenous people are immune to the zombie plague. They can still be eaten by zombies, but if they get bitten, they don't turn. However, the white people in the community are vulnerable to infection. Lysol has gotten incrementally more militant and hostile towards the desire of Charlie and others in the community to offer sanctuary to white outsiders. However, the white people are sequestered in their own little village within the compound. Now, the latest example, the one that we see, is a man and his young daughter, the latter of whom had been bitten by a zombie and is very clearly going to die. They execute her at the entrance of the community, and the guy kills himself in the bathroom later and then reanimates as a zombie. It's a big old mess. Oh, yeah. This movie is very gory. They they did not skimp on the blood. Yeah, one bit that people keep pointing out is that in order to save on ammunition, the compound blocks off the bridge by just erecting a wood chipper and luring zombies to walk into it. Oh my god, that scene is so funny, because the guy operating the wood chipper, he's just sitting there eating his lunch, playing some music, and laughing, and the zombies are just oh, ambling right into the wood chipper, and they're like being sprayed out the other side. This is also a film that plays things fast and loose with certain basic medical principles and also, you know, structural engineering principles. For example, 
A human bone is a lot denser than wood, so the blades in that wood chipper would have worn out real fast, uh, especially with the chainsaws. But then, if that was true, you couldn't have chainsawing people's heads through, which this film likes to indulge in. Yeah, I mean, are we going to let a little science ruin a good time? Yeah, more on that later. <laughs> Another recent arrival is Lilith, who is the token person who is hiding the fact that she's been bitten by a zombie as she's being led into the safe oh, community. They should have strip searched her. I'm surprised they weren't making everybody strip down to nothing. You're like, do you have any bites? Yeah, even Lysol is like, the honor system's okay with me. <laughs> Well, for drama, for drama. That night, at Lysol's little druggy shelter away from the compound, Joseph discovers a fully turned Lilith chewing on Lysol's severed penis. I'm really surprised that he didn't bleed to death immediately. Uh, yeah, I guess they had the foresight to cauterize the wound in between scenes, or this is another wood chipper chainsaw thing where you shouldn't be thinking about it too yeah, much. Yeah, I mean, no wonder he kind of went really extra berserk after that because a guy like him who's you know telling all the sexual prowess stories he would have a really hard time dealing with not having his dick anymore i mean i don't necessarily tie my penis to sexual prowess but if i lost it i could see that being a turning point for me i can have a hard time believing that it wouldn't be yeah i know right <laughs> Anyway. And, yeah, moving on. Joseph and Lysol return to the compound with Lilith in restraints, which confuses Joseph. Uh, Lysol then stabs Joseph and lets Lilith loose inside the white people village. Trailer and Gizigu, who are returning from a mission to eliminate zombies by a gas station alongside fellow tribesman Bumper, find the community overrun with zombies. They discover that Joss, Joseph, Charlie, and eight other survivors are trapped in a basement. They break in there and lure the zombies away by blasting some Waylon Jennings. Zombie hillbillies like their Waylon Jennings. And they do manage to get all of the people out, but Trailer is eaten alive before he can manage to escape. Very sad. He was a cool guy. He was a cool guy. I mean, the best character is Gizuku, the grandpa. Have we mentioned that he has a katana? This old guy, and he's just cutting up zombies with it. Yeah, there's this septuagenarian grandpa with a katana who is just chopping zombies left and right. He immediately enters into your heart. Yeah, he's our, he was our favorite character. Joss, Joseph, and Charlie escape the basement with the help of Gizigu and Bumper. Gizigu and Joseph are then waylaid to a church by a mixed signal from Lysol in order to prevent Lysol's uh, drug posse from killing a group of survivors. And while they're away, Lysol ambushes Joss, Charlie, and Bumper. Lysol stabs Bumper and it winds up getting shot by Joss. Lysol does manage to free a zombie from the trunk of his car, which bites Charlie. Joseph arrives and kills the zombie, and then he, along with Gizigu, drag Lysol away from the scene. Joseph then hobbles Lysol further by stabbing him, and Gizigu alerts the zombies to Lysol's location by firing a shotgun into the air. The zombies then eat Lysol alive. It's what he deserves. Joseph, Charlie, and Joss set out into open water on a boat while Gizigu stays behind. He doesn't want to leave the village for, I don't know, he just doesn't want to, he's done. I mean, I kind of guess that he's a veteran of some sort. Indigenous people end up having very high rates of serving in the military. And there's a picture in his shop that I, I guess it must be him as a younger man in the military. And since it takes place in 1981, it's reasonably, it's reasonable to believe that a 70-year-old man could possibly have been a World War II veteran. 
you know, you get some shots of him hacking away at the zombies with his katana before he gets brought down, but then one of the film's animated vignettes has him standing over the zombies. He apparently killed all of them, depending on whether or not you consider the animated segments to be canonical with the rest of the film or if they're just a metaphor. There's been some debate over that. Joseph, Charlie, and Joss set out in the open water. As I said before, Charlie gives birth to a healthy baby girl, but then begs Joseph to kill her before she turns. Final scene is Joseph shooting her in the head. The end. All right, before we go further into the film, I think there should be some historic background, particularly about its title. Oh, yes. I didn't even know this. Yeah, I knew bits of it, but having to do this episode made me read further. Blood quantum laws were enacted in the Stolen Lands and the former 13 colonies of North America, present-day United States, to identify percentages of Native American or Indigenous ancestry. This was usually done in order to deny citizenship rights to people who had tribal blood within them. A blood quantum is defined by the fraction of ancestors who were documented as full-blooded Native Americans. For most of the 19th century, this was not an optional thing. It was often forced upon Native Americans against their will. Many Native Americans actively avoided enumeration, especially following 1830s Indian Removal Act and the Trail of Tears, which Fuck Andrew Jackson! Yeah, happened from 1832 1850 directly as a result of the Indian Removal Act. Blood quantum shifted its interpretation quite a bit and one was first widely applied on a national scale with the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934. Uh, at this point in history, the American government required people to have a certain blood quantum to be eligible for benefits under treaties or sales of land. My first interaction with this as a historical precedent was um, uh, blood quantum laws in relation to Native Hawaiians. The American government has a series of, I think, restitution or reparations or some other kind of benefit if you are at least 50% Hawaiian. However, since Hawaii has often been a trading outpost for United States, Philippines, uh, Japan, almost nobody in Hawaii is at least 50% Hawaiian. Yeah, that, that's a dick move right there. Blood quantum is a very controversial thing amongst Native American communities and First Nation communities and indigenous communities of all sorts. Many tribes consider them to be junk science effort of colonialism, which fair. However, certain tribes, uh, the Navajo Nation and the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians, to use the two most prominent examples, uh, have used blood quantum today as a part of their citizenship requirements. Other tribes, uh, most notably the Wampanoag, have uh, tightened their membership rules in accordance to blood quantum and excluded people who used to be members of the tribe, which has resulted in some legal battles. A number of other tribes try to determine their membership through lineal descent or other such means. Uh, as I said before, this is a very controversial issue, and I am white. I am not qualified to speak about it with any degree of authority. If you want to know more, consult your local library, I guess. Yeah, this is one of those another one of those episodes where it's like Ryan and I are white, but we're going to try to talk about this anyway, because to not talk about it is negligent, but go talk to people or read people who are more qualified than we are. Yes, go to them. I'm always afraid of this show turning into a panel on diversity that's two white people. Yeah. So I was a little reticent to talk about blood quantum, but... You're explaining what the title meant. I didn't know what it was. Just to show you how much I know. 
Now, the production of the film itself, it was shot on First Nations reserves in Quebec as well as uh, Campbellton, New Brunswick. It was written, produced, directed, and starring First Nations people, uh, particularly Jeff Barnaby, who not only directed it, but uh, wrote and edited the film as well. He said he was directly inspired by Night of the Living Dead, which he first got into when he was a teenager, and a 1981 recording of Canadian authorities brutalizing First Nation fishermen. The cast was presented with this footage before shooting began to give them an idea of where this was coming from. It's a gorgeously edited movie. Like, some of the shots are very, very nice to look at. There, Especially the one scene where Joss is making a cup of tea. It's filmed and presented to you as if this is, has much more significance to it than it really does. Yeah, this is a very interesting overhead shot of the, uh, of the loose-leaf tea in particular. You know, one thing that struck me about the direction was all the crazy Dutch angles that Barnaby used for the opening credits. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, and I'm not entirely sure, like, why the animated interludes are there, but they're cool looking. Yeah, why not? Yeah, they have a comic book nod to it. That's something that keeps getting brought up into it. I, I watched some cast interviews, and uh, Kiwa Gordon, who plays Lysol, he compares working with Barnaby to just playing pretend with an enthusiastic five-year-old who's just, like, mashing his zombie action figures next to each other. <laughs> Like, uh, like, he just talked about this guy like he's this big old nerd, especially about horror fiction, and yeah, I buy that readily. Yeah, you can tell there's a, a real love for the genre in this movie. This is Barnaby's second feature. He had done a number of short films over the past decade. His debut was called Rhymes for Young Ghouls, which was produced in 2013. It's about a teen girl fighting against the abuse of First Nation school children in a boarding school. That sounds really cool. We should watch that. It uh, won Best Canadian Feature Film at the 2013 Vancouver International Film Festival. And like uh, Rhymes for Young Ghouls, uh, Blood Quantum got a number of grants from the Canadian government. Uh, Canada in general is a little more supportive when it comes to giving endowments for the arts. Yeah, and they'd let you know where they got all the money from because the opening credits are just different grants. So like, okay, this movie was definitely made in Canada with Canadian money. It's something that I'm not accustomed to being an American because, you know, artists are just like sink or swim on your own. There is a national endowment for the arts that gets like 0.005% of the budget as a whole. And even then, it's considered like this big, massive drain and we need to cut it off because that Sesame Street money needs to go to jets that can't take off. Anyway. Yeah, (laughs) talking to a Canadian cartoonist about who are doing graphic novels for Drawn and Quarterly and it came up like Drawn and Quarterly has to put out X number of books a year or else they lose their government grant and that's why my book is coming out. And it's like, that is just so interesting. I really want that. I know my sister managed to get a, a small, but like not like a, a in, an insignificant amount of money as like a grant because she was out of work because of the pandemic. I was like, oh, you're really lucky you got that. <laughs> I mean, if, you know, she was working on her own and living on her own, it would not have been enough to pay her rent. But when you're, you know, still living with your parents, the amount of money she got was like, that's really, really nice. Yeah, it's not nothing. 
Yeah, uh, the music for this film is very much in the background, like most film music these days. It's trying to subtly undertone certain scenes without having you notice it. It's composed by uh, Barnaby and a guy named Joe Barucco. It's mostly minimalist keyboards. I found that there were a lot of parallels between it and Goblin's score to Dawn of the Dead, except, you know, Goblin is very much more in your face about it. It's Goblin! Yep. Also, it made me think of John Carpenter's synthesizer scores, especially on his early work, and... You know, once people ask Carpenter what his process was, he's just like, electric keyboards were the cheapest way to score a film in a way that sounded full. Yeah, if you ever watch, like, a, what is it, Assault on Precinct 13 by Carpenter, you can definitely hear the keyboard in that movie. So it has that vibe, but in a more chill way. And there are some pop song uses, most of them diegetic. Uh, I mentioned Waylon Jennings, George Jones is another country icon that comes up in here. There are a few riffs on traditional indigenous music sewn throughout. And interestingly enough, Lachio Lewis and the Honey Bears, who are a contemporary group, even though this takes place in 1981. The- you can kind of ignore that it takes place in 1981. I feel like they, they put it, the whole 1981 part, so that you can have cool vintage cars and also the fact to explain why there's no cell phones. Yeah, a lot of problems would have been solved with cell phones. Oh, but, yeah. yeah. Also, the people in the compound would have had a better idea, possibly, if they were the last human civilization refuge left. Because in Blood Quantum, they don't know, which adds to the tension. Let's talk a little more about the cast. Most of them game amateurs. A few of them have some experience. Uh, Michael Gray Eyes' trailer. And when I read a couple of the bad reviews of this film, most of the reviews were positive, but a lot of them focused on... Like amateurish acting, and a good chunk of them were mean towards Gray Eyes. I don't think his performance here is bad. He's playing an archetype in an exploitation film, and he has decided to sort of undersell most of his lines. Yeah, I mean, he feels like a very serious guy doing a serious thing. It fits the character archetype. I didn't have an issue with his performance. And then El Mayhut uh, Tailfeathers is playing Joss, which is another stock role in this, and there's sort of this thing between her and uh, her character and Trailer because they're raising a son, although their marriage has failed, largely because Trailer has sort of fallen away from his responsibilities in a way that's only vaguely alluded to in the film's plot. There is this undercurrent that after the zombie apocalypse that they're getting along better and perhaps on their way to reconciling, perhaps. Especially the scene where she's cleaning yet another one of his bite wounds. I thought that there was a bit of intimacy in there that I thought added to the film. Mm -hmm, I agree. It felt like they were believable as, like, exes who still care about each other. Then there's Forrest Goodluck as Joseph, who's... He probably has the most thankless role in the film. He does a good job with it, though. His one facet of attaching himself in terms of his motivations to you is the fact that he's a little insecure about his relationship with Charlie. He's afraid of her getting the abortion because he thinks that it's a sign that Charlie doesn't see him as someone who's worthy of, like, building a family with. Yeah, but they're also, like, 18. They're kids. Yeah, that's something that Barnaby wanted to impress. He wanted to take, like, this typical hillbilly kids who got knocked up way too young story and build the zombie movie around it. And yeah, if you were in Joseph's position, that is a completely reasonable insecurity for someone to come to, regardless of whether or not it makes sense to an outside observer. I believe that he felt that way. And then we have Kiowa Gordon, who is Lysol, and he probably has the most fun role in the film. I could see him. He gets to be this little psycho guy. Yeah, he gets to be like the absolute hammy human villain. And and you can still 
to a certain extent, you can understand why he feels the way he does. It brings into like the whole, you know, almost he, he's he's not as well balanced or as smart as Killmonger from Black Panther, but you can kind of see I mean, the if that's, colonial legacy there. Yeah, if that's if that's your barrier for going over it, yes, Lysol falls be, uh, below that because this is an exploitation film that is not trying to do even the nuance of a Marvel movie, which. <laughs> Frankly, the Marvel movies could use a little nuance sometimes. Uh, yeah, he's clearly enjoying himself. He's playing the most fun part that of, of any stock character in a zombie movie, and that rubs off on it. And then we have Olivia Scriven as Charlie, another fairly thankless role. I thought her death was really sad. I was kind of hoping that there would be, you know, fetal transfer and maybe she would have an immunity, but I, I guess not. Yeah, you, you raised that possibility while we were watching this and it was like, no, in order for it to be a more emotionally satisfying ending, she, she probably needs to get blown away in the last scene and yeah, that's what happens. And then we have Stonehorse Logoman, who is Gizagu. Once again, this guy is meant to be your favorite character. He's like, Stone Cold Badass. Yeah, it's like, here's the 70-year-old man who's hacking away at zombies with a samurai sword. And he's like, yeah, you're trying to make him my favorite character, but I'm still falling for it. It still works. I see the strings you're trying to pull in me movie, but I can't help myself. Yeah, he, he's, you know, an elder statesman who's killing zombies. And he gets all the best one-liners. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, he's also doing the sort of underhanded, underacting that uh, Michael Gray Eyes is doing his trailer, which makes sense because he's playing trailer's dad. And uh, this is the fact that he's this stone-faced old man. His I'm getting too old for this shit is a, a little more believable. Yeah, because he is, like, old, old. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not a... He doesn't look like a septuagenarian who can still go hiking and do a lot of push-ups. I mean, he's, a, he's still a fisherman. He can still get all the fish. And when it's time to kick ass and help his community, he's, he's still going to do his best. Uh, yeah, this film was brought to the Cannes Film Market in May 2019 as part of the Fantastic Seven, a program that Cannes uh, Film Festival does for genre films that is sponsored by various international film festivals. Blood Quantum was sponsored by the Toronto International Film Festival, which is where it premiered. It was the Canadian entry at the Toronto International Film Festival. It was the second runner-up in the People's Choice Award for Midnight Madness, which is the Toronto International Film Festival segment for cult movies. Which is interesting because I want to see the two. I yeah, want to know which two movies. Yeah, we were the two films that beat it. Yeah. It was acquired for international distribution by Shudder in, uh, and in Canada by Crave. And it debuted on Shudder on April 28th, 2020, which makes it the most recent film I've covered on this show. Yeah, and Shudder does a pretty good job with promoting films that otherwise would not have, would have had trouble finding a place to be released on. And now's the time for the show where we talk about the themes. Now, just hearing the basic premise of this film, it's impossible not to look at this through the lens of colonialism and manifest destiny and applying role reversal to that sort of thing. When you see white people clamoring on Indian reservations, begging for sanctuary, it's very difficult to take an apolitical reading of that. Yeah, and I don't think they do any of the themes in like a real heavy-handed sort of way. It's mostly just presented to you as is. There's no moralizing for good or for bad. 
That is something that Barnaby stresses in every interview he's given about it. He uses crash as an example of <laughs> something not to do. Oh my god, I had to watch that in my English class because my teacher thought it was a good movie. I was like, even in high school where I was definitely not the most aware person, I was like, this movie is garbage. It's a really racist movie about racism. Yeah, that being said, Barnaby has said that the, the mere fact that almost all of film history up to this point has mostly been through the lens of Eurocentric white people, doing it even in zombie movie from the perspective of First Nation people without a Kevin Costner figure to hold your hand throughout the whole thing is going to be seen as a bold and, revo and sometimes revolutionary act. Charlie's the token white character, but she doesn't really drive the plot. She's a MacGuffin. Even calling her a MacGuffin might be overdoing it a bit. She's a fairly minor supporting character and she doesn't really mean anything to any character other than Joseph. I mean, you know, Joss will help her out, but that's not Joss's main motivation. Barnaby himself stresses that the film isn't meant to be a pure representation of First Nation life. He does not want people to watch the film and think that this is what it's like on uh, any of the reservations, particularly the one that Barnaby grew up on. He claims it to be a fusion of his own background with zombie movie tropes. You know, that being said, there are a lot of nods in this film that I didn't pick up until I looked a little more. The most infamous one apparently being uh, one shot in the film that invokes a um, infamous, at least in Canada, face-to-face -face photo where a Canadian soldier stares down a Mohawk warrior during the 1990 Oka Crisis standoff, which is something that I had to look up on. I, I, I did a quick Google on it. This is something that I definitely don't want to speak about with any degree of authority. Look that up on your own. Once again, these are just little nods here and there, not dissimilar to Dawn of the Dead or Night of the Living Dead. The focus is on the splatter. It's about decapitating zombies with your big homemade axe. It is about mowing them down with your chainsaw. It's about, cool. it is about tricking them into walking into the wood chipper. That is the thing that the film focuses on. There's just this other stuff in the subtext that is going to be there, especially if you're looking for it. And I think whether you're looking for it or not, it does make it a better film. I think it's in the subtext to the point where you would have to be actively trying not to notice it for you to never notice it. Yeah. So if that's that, and uh, yeah, the USB port is acting up, hence the pinging noises, I say we wrap this up. Yeah. Good episode, everybody. Good night. Bye.